We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go, episode 57 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, May 6, 2021. It is Sace de Mayo. Hope you had a nice Cinco de Mayo. John Means had a good Cinco de Mayo, one he will never forget. A no-hitter, the first individual no-hitter by an Oriole since Jim Palmer's in August 1969. A feat so great, so grand, so historical that it has elevated the Orioles segment on the Al Galdi podcast from being last. Yes, for one of the rare times this baseball season, I will talk Orioles before talking Nationals on the show. That's what a no-no gets you. Elevation on the rundown for this podcast. Nats losing to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park for a second straight night, giving up a grand slam for a second consecutive night. Enough with the grand slams, please. But hello and welcome to another installment of the pod. Washington football team defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio spoke on Wednesday. He does not speak often. He spoke on Wednesday. We shall discuss and dissect coming up in just a bit. Jack saying that Landon Collins is staying at strong safety, not moving to linebacker. Or did Jack say that? I will play for you the key portions of the interview and give you my interpretations. Jack also addressed some other things with Washington's defense that we need to get into. In our continuing quest to give you insight and analysis on Washington's 2021 draft, our guest on the show is North Carolina receivers coach Lonnie Galloway. He's going to tell us all about Deyami Brown, the speedster, the playmaker, a man who could help Washington finally sit at the grown-ups table this NFL season when it comes to offense, especially the explosive play. It was another wild night for both the Capitals and the Wizards. You know, we had this on Monday night when the two teams both played. Caps had that brawl for all in their 6-3 win at the New York Rangers. The Wizards had that insane game with the Indiana Pacers, a 154-141 victory. Well, we had dual chaos again with the Capitals and the Wizards on Wednesday night. Caps with another brawl for all. It was brawl for all part two in a Caps win at the Rangers. And we had another shootout for the Wizards, though this time a loss at the Milwaukee Bucks. Lots to talk about with those two games. Talk about them, we shall. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com, especially if you would like to join the movement and advertise on the podcast. Let the power of the pod work for you. Your rankings update, by the way, for the podcast. The Al Galdi podcast was back in the top 25 in the country on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. Yes, top 25 in the country, the nation that is the United States 
of America in U.S. football and Apple podcasts. So I owe you another thank you for your support, your downloading, your subscribing, your rating, your reviewing. Cannot tell you thank you enough for doing those things and supporting the show. Email from Josh. He says regarding the Orioles, hey, Al, so are John Means, Trey Mancini, and Cedric Mullins chips to be flipped? Yes, that is my phrase for the Orioles this season. Well, I'll answer it like this. Cedric Mullins, no, he should be here to stay. Trey Mancini, yes, as much as we all love him, he should be dealt. And John Means, maybe. It's actually complicated with Means. I'll explain a little bit later on. Email from Michael King on our Aaron Rodgers conversation on Wednesday's podcast, right? We talked about what ESPN NFL writer Bill Barnwell said, that the Washington football team can offer the second most attractive hypothetical trade offer to the Green Bay Packers for Aaron Rodgers. The deal, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Matt Ioannidis, two first-round draft picks and two second-round draft picks to the pack for Rodgers. And I said I would do that. I said, though, I would only do it if I had reasonable assurance that Aaron Rodgers was going to behave, that he was not going to be a diva, that he was going to be all in on going to and playing for the Washington football team. You'd also have to figure out the contract situation. Does Rodgers want a new contract? If so, can you negotiate one with him before you make such a deal? But if you could check those two boxes, he's going to behave and be happy and be on board, and the contract stuff has worked out, then yes, I would give up. Fitzmagic, Ioannidis, two ones and 2-2. Says Michael King, there is no way to guarantee no diva disgruntled crap. He could assure you he is happy and will be happy, and then at any time, for whatever reason, become old grumpy pants for whatever reason he perceives. No way on Rodgers for me. I hear you on that. That would be a concern. That's, That's what I'm saying. You'd have to have reasonable assurance that he would not do that. You, within yourself, would have to feel like, okay, this guy is on board, and he's going to be good to go. If not, then I'm not doing that deal, okay? I'm not giving up the boatload of assets that Barnwell outlines to get the great Aaron Rodgers. But that is the thing. He is great. He's not a saint, okay? There's not a halo over his head. But I also don't think he's like a horrible human being either. And I think that if he came here and was all in, three years left on his contract, you figure that out. But while he's going into his age 38 season, he's athletic to where he can be good for at least another three to five years. At least, maybe longer. Who knows? I mean, Tom Brady... Drew Brees to a lesser extent, even Fitzpatrick in some ways, changing the way we view the aging curve for quarterbacks in the NFL. So if those guys can play well deep into their 30s, if not their 40s, why can't Rodgers? He, to me, profiles as someone who can do that. But you would have to know, you would, that he's on board, that he's good to go. We have dealt with disgruntled divas many times over the years with the Washington football team. We don't need another one, especially with the new culture that Ron Rivera, a.k.a. Don Ron, is establishing. All right, so guess who spoke on Wednesday? Washington defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio. He gave an in-house interview, spoke to Julie Donaldson, who is Washington's senior vice president of media and content. You hear her on the radio broadcast of Washington football team games. And old Jack made some news in the interview. We'll start with this, what Jack had to say about the Landon Collins situation. Jack said that Landon is staying at strong safety. And this is in contrast to the way the wind had been blowing. As you likely know, there had been a lot of chatter this offseason about Landon moving to linebacker, or at the very least, taking on more of a linebacker-like role. And I don't think what Jack said ends that, and I'll explain that coming up in just a bit. But remember, we've had Landon on social media being adamant about not moving to linebacker. March of this year, he on Instagram, in response to a question about potentially moving to linebacker, wrote, not happening, my guy. Uh, Ron Rivera on April 16th in a Zoom press conference said the following about Landon having said that he wasn't moving to linebacker, quote, 
That was Landon. Again, our plan for Landon is to have him here and have him compete and have him be a part of what we're doing going forward. End quote. So you did not get from Ron at that Zoom presser on April 16th a get out of here when it came to Landon Collins, potentially move a linebacker. You got sort of a cryptic response of that was Landon. You know, our plan is to have him compete. You know, that kind of felt like uh, that may be what Landon is saying, but that's not necessarily what we want to be doing. Then you had with Washington football team insider John Kyman, an installment of the John Kyman Report podcast that came out on April 25th said, and that was that Washington was talking with Landon about a potential move to linebacker or at least a move to big nickel linebacker, i.e. a safety who acts as a hybrid linebacker slash corner. And again, I don't think that's off the table. More on that momentarily. But that is all what had been said. Here's what was said from Jack to Julie about Landon. Talking about Landon? Yeah. No, he's strong safety, uh, working his butt off, getting in shape. I asked him to be just a little bit lighter this year. I think another year in the system, understanding what we do, how we do it, making sure he's in the right places at the right time, and that he can be the impactful player that we think he's capable of being. So we, I'm looking for Landon to take a step forward this year, play even better. And Washington very much needs Landon to be better. He was brutal for so much of his time playing last season. Of course, only did play in seven games due to the ruptured Achilles tendon. But over those seven games, Landon Collins, an overall grade per pro football focus of just 60. This off, by the way, having registered an overall grade per PFF over 15 games in the 2019 regular season of 69.3. And Landon last season was woeful as a tackler. I mean, Landon's bad tackling slapped you right across the face over the first month of the season. Even at the end of the regular season, with Landon having only played in the seven games, he still was tied for fourth on Washington in most missed tackles per sport radar at nine. And all nine of Landon's missed tackles happened over the first four games of the season. But okay, so per Jack, Landon is staying at strong safety. More on that in a bit. But what does this mean for Cameron Curl? Uh, it means Cam will be playing like he did last year, um, whether, he, whether he plays in the Buffalo nickel, whether he plays... Uh, free safety, whether you know whether he spells Landon or however however he creates his time. So, thing about Cam, he came in here, and all he did was work. You know, from day one, this is a young man drafted in the seventh round. Nobody really expected much of him, and he just went about his business every day. And when he was asked to play, he played and played well. Yes, he did play well. Washington, of course, took Curl in the seventh round of the 2020 draft out of Arkansas, for which he played strong safety and corner. Curl in the 2020 season started each of Washington's final 10 games, including the playoff loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wildcard round. Curl in the 2020 regular season for Pro Football Focus was the highest graded rookie safety in the NFL. Overall grade of 68, which isn't that great of a grade, but still, it stands out that a seventh-round pick ended up being the highest-graded rookie safety in the league. Curl, in the regular season, three interceptions, became the first Washington rookie to have an interception in each of two consecutive games since Carlos Rogers in 2005. Cameron Curl needs to play, and here's my takeaway. Just because you call Landon Collins the strong safety doesn't mean that he is the strong safety and doesn't mean that he's always playing exactly strong safety. This can be like, say, Jordan Reed, where he was called a tight end, but he lined up wide plenty. He lined up as a receiver plenty. He was almost like another receiver as time went on. And that, to me, can be what happens with Landon Collins to where you have both him and Curl on the field at the same time. And to that point, take a listen to what Jack said later in the interview 
about Landon's role for 2021. He'll play safety, and that doesn't mean we won't play the safety in the box some. A lot of people are talking about he should move to linebacker full-time. Right. Uh, we've, we've, got, we've got linebackers. He's a safety. We need him to play well in a safety role. But sometimes that will be down in the box, which can look like a linebacker. All right. So did you hear that? The headline from this interview is Jack Del Rio says Landon Collins is staying at strong safety. What very few people are noting is that Jack Del Rio later in that same interview says, well, yeah, he's going to be a strong safety, but we're going to deploy him at times where maybe it looks like he is playing linebacker. I mean, come on. Jack is telling you that this is not as simple as Landon just staying at strong safety, and that's it. End of story. Landon is going to be deployed in a variety of ways, just like Cameron Curl has been deployed in a variety of ways. Know this about Curl. Last regular season for Pro Football Focus, he played at least 150 snaps at each of three spots, box safety, free safety, and slot corner. This is the nature of the NFL now. Your position may be one thing, your label may be one thing, but your deployment can be an entirely different story. Position flex, right? We hear Ron Rivera use that phrase all the time. Position flex. Position flex. Yes, thank you, Ron. Position flex. Ron tells us all the time how much he values that. And so wouldn't it make sense for Ron to use guys in different ways? For Ron's defensive coordinator, Jack Del Rio, to use guys in different ways. And you're going to see that, I believe, even with Landon Collins in 2021. Call him what you want to, but I think you're going to see him used more and more like a linebacker, which I think is smart. I think makes sense. And if you have Curl when he's in the game with Landon as more of the coverage guy, I think that makes sense too, because Cameron Curl has covered skills. We saw that with the three interceptions last regular season. And remember, some of those picks were big picks. Week 14, 23-15 win over the San Francisco 49ers in Arizona. Curl had a 76-yard pick six on the final defensive snap of the third quarter. Week 17, the 2014 win at the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday Night Football to clinch the NFC East. Curl had a first quarter interception of a Jalen Hurts pass intended for the tight end Zach Ertz. Like, Curl can cover better than Landon Collins can. So yeah, they're both in the game at the same time. Have Collins play more as the guy at the line of scrimmage. Have Curl be the guy who more is utilized in pass coverage. Okay, fine, but have Cameron Curl out there. I don't want Landon Collins playing at the expense of Cameron Curl. I don't have an issue with Landon Collins playing. I do think Landon has talent. I would like to think he's not as bad as we saw for so much of his time last season, but I'm not doing anything here where Curl is not going to be playing a lot. Cameron Curl, to me, is going to be playing a bunch. He should be playing a bunch. I want that guy on the field. The fact that Landon Collins has a big money contract should not enter into this one iota. First of all, Washington can get out of the contract, reasonably speaking, after this upcoming season. So for one season, you can deal with it, paying a guy big money who maybe isn't playing as much as he would be in an ideal world. But the other thing is money should not dictate playing time. If we're truly resetting the culture, if this is truly about winning and doing what's best for the team, then Landon Collins, if he's not the best guy to be out there, should not be out there over someone who's better and Cameron Curl. Now, again, that doesn't mean that Landon shouldn't play. That doesn't mean that Landon can't play. Landon Collins, you know, what's interesting is the game in which he suffered the ruptured Achilles last year was by far his best game of the season, that 25-3 win over the Dallas Cowboys at a rainy FedEx field in Week 7. If you remember the specifics of that game, Cowboys' first offensive drive starts at the Cowboys' one of Kyle Allen getting stuffed on a fourth-and-goal quarterback sneak from the Cowboys' one. The drive for Dallas resulted in a safety, thanks to Landon Collins, a third and eight sack strip, 
of Andy Dalton. The ball recovered by the Dallas tight end Dalton Schultz, who got tackled in the end zone by Jonathan Allen, but landed on that play beautifully, blowing by Schultz on a blitz for the sack and then doing a tremendous job of chopping the ball with his right arm out of Dalton's right hand. So I don't want to just write off Landon Collins, but I also am not interested at all in him playing a bunch and Cameron Curl playing very little. I want, at the very least, both guys out there a lot in 2021. And it sounds to me, I mean, you tell me what you think, but it sounds to me like that is the plan. And Jack Del Rio may say that Landon Collins is staying at strong safety. And there's truth to that. I'm not saying that there isn't. But understand, later in that same interview, from which the headline everyone's talking about is Jack says Landon is staying at strong safety, Jack still says, yeah, but he may be utilized in a linebacker kind of way. We need him to play well in a safety role, but sometimes that will be down in the box, which can look like a linebacker. Yes, there it is right there. Thank you very much, Jack. Now, also from Jack Del Rio in this interview was him saying that Benjamin St. Juice will be playing corner. So Benjamin St. Juice was the first of Washington's two third round selections in the 2021 draft, the corner out of Minnesota. He was almost exclusively a boundary corner in college. St. Juice in his collegiate career for pro football focus had just seven snaps in the slot versus 740 snaps out wide. Although at the 2021 Senior Bowl, St. Juice played at corner, free safety, and strong safety. So there was some conversation of, well, he's a defensive back, and maybe he's used as much at safety as he is at corner, maybe more so at safety than at corner. Here was Jack with Julie on St. Juice. We see him as a corner. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, that's where he's going to start. That's where we think he'll be. Uh, he's got exceptional quickness. He had a 6-6 three cone, which is unheard of. Um, anything under seven is good. And so for a, for a guy 6-3 to do that shows you the short area quickness. Um, he's a physical player. He'll show up uh, on the edge of your defense. And so much of today's uh, offenses, you know, the Shanahan and all the all the run uh, systems, they want to make your corner. They drag them into the fit, and they're cracking with their wideout and forcing the corner to play. Well, this guy will show up and, and strike you, so we, we like that about him. And you should. Benjamin St. Juice is a very intriguing prospect. First of all, Washington drafting St. Juice completes the Trent Williams trade. Washington acquired the third-round pick that was used to take St. Juice in that Trent Williams trade, right? The Saturday of the 2020 NFL draft, day three of that draft, Washington dealt left tackle Trent Williams to the San Francisco 49ers for a 2020 fifth round pick and a 2021 third round pick. The 2020 fifth rounder was used on the center Keith Ismail. The 2021 third rounder has been used now on Benjamin St. Juice. He is a bigger corner, not necessarily super fast in terms of the 40 time, although you heard Jack talk up St. Juice's cone time. But Benjamin St. Juice at the Minnesota Pro Day on April 1st measures being 6'3 and a quarter and 202 pounds. Washington does not have big corners. Washington has some good corners, but like William Jackson III is listed by Washington as being six feet tall. Kendall Fuller, Jimmy Moreland, each is listed by Washington as being 5'11". You have size at the cornerback position in Benjamin St. Juice at, again, 6'3" and a quarter. Guy with an interesting background from Montreal, went to high school in Montreal, rose to being a premier football prospect going into college out of Canada. I mean, that's not something that you see often. Then his collegiate career was unique. He began it at Michigan, played in his 2017 true freshman season, although in just three games, then redshirted in 2018 due to a hamstring injury, transfers to Minnesota as a graduate transfer in 2019, plays for the Gophers in 2019 
and 2020. Another thing from Jack with Julie was Jack admitting that more man coverage is potentially the plan for 2021. And I don't think that this is shocking, but it certainly is notable. So William Jackson III, right, the second of Washington's big three free agent signings in March. First came Ryan Fitzpatrick, then Jackson, then Curtis Samuel. Jackson got a three-year, $40.5 million contract, $26 million and guaranteed money. And if you remember, there was a decent amount made of Jackson being a very good man corner, but that perhaps not meshing well with Washington's defense, which played a lot of zone coverage in 2020. And zone coverage is something that Ron Rivera's Carolina Panthers defenses were known for. Here was more from Jack with Julie. Yeah, we played a lot of zone. We played it well. Um, So we will get our guys and work our guys and then take advantage of what we think they do best. We do think we've added some ability to play a little more man, which frees up uh, the defense coordinator to call more pressures. Things like that are um, in the mix, but we'll see. You know, it's... um, we think for sure with William, we've added a guy that can go out there and cover the best receivers in the, in the league. And, um, and with St. Juice, we think we've added a guy that, that brings um, talent, toughness, quickness, and um, certainly gives us the ability to do the same thing on, on both sides of the defense. Yeah, and what you heard there are the words of a defensive coordinator who is going to adapt to his talent, which is what every good coach should do. It's not about fitting players into your way. It's about adjusting your way to your players. And I think Jack Del Rio will do that. I mean, two things to keep in mind with this man versus zone stuff. Number one, William Jackson III can play zone. He missed his entire 2016 rookie season due to a torn pec. But Jackson, over his four seasons of actually playing for the Cincinnati Bengals 2017 through 2020, Per Pro Football Focus had a man coverage grade of 78.8, a zone coverage grade of 74.1. So slightly less success in zone coverage, but it's not enough to where you're like, oh my God, he's completely lost if you have him out there in zone coverage. The other thing is, it's not like Jack Del Rio has not used man coverage. He utilized man coverage and with great success during his time as Denver Broncos defensive coordinator from 2012 through 2014. The Broncos NFL rankings in total defense Per Football Outsiders DVOA metric were number five in 2012, number 15 in 2013, and number four in 2014. So over Jack's three seasons as Broncos defensive coordinator, he had a top five defense per DVOA twice, and he was doing this making sizable usage of man coverage. So I'm not caught up in the zone man thing. You do what works. Last season, Jack did what worked. Zone coverage, especially with a guy like Ronald Darby playing a prominent role in the secondary And it worked greatly. Washington's pass defense was one of the best in the NFL last regular season. And I think you will see the necessary adaptations made so that Washington's pass defense is again very good in 2021. Because, of course, it's not about Jack getting his way in terms of scheme. It's about Jack doing things in the most effective way to where Washington's defense is as good as it can be. Now, speaking of getting your way, you should get your way when it comes to your doctor. If you're turned off by doctors with whom it's impossible, to get an appointment. If you're fed up with going to your doctor and having to sit in the waiting room for 45 minutes, if you don't even call your doctor anymore when you have a question because you know it's going to take forever to get a call back, I have your solution, local physician, Dr. Matthew Mintz. Dr. Matthew Mintz is an internal medicine and primary care physician. He offers a concierge membership practice that allows for old-fashioned personalized medical care in which every patient is a person not a number. Dr. Mintz removes the frustrations caused by typical doctor's offices by offering same-day, next-day appointments, longer appointment times, lab work that's done in the office, and 24-7 
after hours access. Yeah, you heard that right. You can reach Dr. Mintz on his cell phone day and night. And if you're worried about payment, understand that unlike most concierge practices in the area, Dr. Mintz's can generate invoices that you can submit to your insurance company for reimbursement, saving you money. Dr. Mintz is board certified in internal medicine. He was recently named a top doctor by Bethesda Magazine. He is on the faculty of the George Washington University School of Medicine. His office is located in Bethesda in the Wildwood Medical Center just across the street from Balducci's. Dr. Mintz grew up in the area, is a big Washington football fan, and is a regular listener to the Al Galdi podcast. Dr. Mintz offers a free meet and greet to see if his practice is right for you. Just go to drmintz.com. That's drmintz.com, D-R-M-I-N-T-Z.com, or call his office. Make sure you say that Al Galdi sent you the phone number, 855-646-8963. That's 855-646-8963. Dr. Matthew Mintz, internal medicine and primary care physician, personalized medical care the way you like it, the way it used to be, and the way it should be, and tell him Al Galdi sent you. Well, I know Dr. Matthew Mintz is excited for a lot of things regarding the Washington football team, including the second of Washington's two third-round picks in the 2021 draft, North Carolina receiver Diami Brown, and time now for a special look at Diami from a guy who knows him well. Well, perhaps no 2021 draft pick by the Washington football team generated as much excitement as the team's second third round pick, North Carolina receiver Diami Brown, ran a 4-4-4-40 at the UNC Pro Day, is coming off back-to-back 1,000-yard receiving seasons for the Tar Heels, averaged 20 yards per catch in each of those seasons. The Washington football team has found an offensive gem in the third round of each of the previous two NFL drafts in Terry McLaurin and Antonio Gibson. Did the streak get to three in the 2021 draft with this selection of Diami Brown? Very pleased to welcome the Al Galdi podcast right now, North Carolina receivers coach, Lonnie Galloway. Coach, it's great to have you on. How are you? Doing well. Glad to be here and glad that all the guys this past week got drafted, so it was, it was a good week for us. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, we're very excited here in D.C. to have Diami Brown. Just generally speaking, what would you say that Washington is getting in Diami? They are getting a top-notch kid that is ready to compete at a high level. I mean, it's something that, you know, he wants. They all want it. Um, but, you know, he put the work in the last few years that I've been here with him to to go out and show that he's one of the best receivers in the country and one of the best receivers in the ACC. So he's a He's a willing, hardworking kid that understands what it takes to come in and compete to, to play at the next level. Washington got Diami at number 82 overall. Is that about where you thought that he'd get drafted or not really? I thought he would go sooner. But, uh, you know, and I talked to him right after he got drafted and I said, it doesn't matter, you know, where you where you got picked. I mean, you go into a great organization. So at the end of the day, the goal was to get to the NFL and, you know, top three rounds, which he's accomplished that. And, you know, they all want to go higher. But, you know, right now, I mean, you're you're a National Football League football player, and, and now it's time to go to work. Tremendous production for Diami for you guys the last two seasons, back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons, average 20 yards per catch. Uh, what would you say stood out to you the most watching Diami play the last two years? Um, just, you know, competing, you know, vertically. You know, he, that's, he, he does that very well. And, uh, people say, well, you don't run all the routes. Yeah, we do. But, I mean, if I can throw the ball over your head 60 yards and he's going to catch it, you know, you can. I mean, that, there's there's been a couple times where he's caught a five-yard hitch and taken it uh, 70 yards. So it's one of those things to me. 
Um, you're getting a complete receiver that can run all the routes. We run all of them. And it's one of those things where, well, most of this stuff is deep. Stop it. You know, that's, that's our opinion. And, uh, you know, he, he, good, good kid, good, good ball player. And, and I can't wait to get to watch him play. And I, I talked to him a couple of days for the draft. I was like, I know you want to get drafted, but you know, most of some of my guys I've had, I mean, have been across the country. I mean, he's up the street. I mean, you know, Washington's right up the road from North Carolina. So, I mean, I'll be at a time to be at, and they always show the games on, on this, on the East coast. So I'll be able to watch them. Yeah, and actually before the Carolina Panthers started, there were a lot of Washington fans in Carolina, and there still are actually a decent amount of Washington fans uh, in the Carolina area. There are. Yeah. I won't tell you who I choose. I mean, I pick I mean, my team, man. But okay. All my guys, I like where they are. All the guys I've had, I like the team that they're <laughs> playing, but I have one team. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little nervous about who that might be, but all right, I got you. Not anybody in y'all's division. Okay. All right. We can accept that then. We can accept that. Uh, is, is there a particular aspect of Deyami's game that improved over his time there? Like, is there something that you look at and you say, wow, Deyami day one versus the Deyami who got drafted, he really improved when it came to this? Just technique, technique in his routes, uh, being a complete receiver, willing to block, uh, you know, understanding, you know, the concepts of the play, being able to, uh, change uh, play calls, add a play to this, you know, change things to where, you know, it was, okay, Deami, you got to do this on this play and, and we're going to tweak this route a little bit and him being able to understand it, but, you know, willing to be, he's willing to be coached, you know, on his technique and using his hands and, and, and understanding, uh, understanding the football game. Cause he'd be like, coach, well, what about that? Well, I saw this, that's why this happened. And, you know, those things. So just being a complete student of the football game. Talking to Yami Brown with North Carolina receivers coach Lonnie Galloway. In terms of where you line Yami up, obviously you can line him up on the outside with the great speed. What about Yami in the slot? Well, I mean, he lined up for most part of for us for outside, but I mean, you know, toward you know some last year and some this year, you know, he can, he can play in the slot. I mean, he practiced a lot in the slot, um, so I don't I don't you know think that'll matter. You know, just being able to put him in the right situation. Um, you know, Washington getting a complete receiver that understands how to play in the slot and outside. So, you know, either or, you know, vertically, outside, inside, you know, you want to try to get matchups and things like that. So um, I know the, 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 the Washington football team will use him in the right way. We see a good bit in the NFL these days of receivers lining up in backfields, jet sweeps, et cetera. Is that something you guys did with the Yami Brown at Carolina? Not too much. I mean, we, we, we have pitched the ball more in practice to him than, you know, some putting them in motion and those type of things. But that wasn't one of his things that we did a lot with him. You've coached receivers for a while. You obviously know the position. Does Yami Brown remind you of any other receiver? Um. I mean, there's a combination of a lot of guys, but I don't want to put uh, put that on him. You know, I'm gonna let him be himself um, and, and and write his own picture. Um, you know, I'd probably mess up if I said he was gonna be like this dude or reminding me of this guy. I mean, because they're all different. You know, the guys I've had are you know different between, from you know Tavon to Kevin White and guys I had at Wake Forest and stuff like that. I mean, they're they're all different. You know, the Ami's build up is he's. 6'1", 197 pounds, strong, physical, and will compete at the highest level, which all the guys that I've had that, that make it to the league, 
you know, but, but they're all different. You know, they're, they're, they're all, all do things differently. You know, so I mean, y'all, y'all, y'all got a great one. Y'all got a great one. Y'all got a, y'all got a steal. That's what Mel Kuyper said. He called it one of the steals of the draft <laughs> when it happened. Yeah. So we're really pumped about it. Yep. You referenced the blocking. It sounds like Diami is in fact a willing blocker too. Oh yeah, I mean, and that you know, to, to play for me, you got to block. I mean, and that's just one of those things to where ninety percent of the time you don't have the football. So you know, and the two backs that we just had, you know, they popped a lot, and you would see Diami chasing down the field to try to make a block, or you know, blocking for for one of the other receivers on a, on a screen or a slot. I mean, a, a screen from the slot position. So you know, he is a willing blocker, and then uh, you know that that's a good trait to have. You know, not to be, you know, he's not afraid of anything. That's great. Now, Ron Rivera has brought up a nit to pick with Diami Brown, some concentration drops at Carolina, balls that were thrown to Diami when he was open and just for whatever reason didn't make the catch. Uh, do you agree that that was a thing at times for Diami? Yes. I mean, and it was like, it was funny. It would happen at the beginning of the season and then it was like, he wouldn't drop the ball anymore. I'm like, you have to look the ball in. And that's like, if you get free, nobody's going to catch you. I mean, there was one game like he caught a slant and went off, and then we went right back to him, and it was like, I was like, what are you doing? He's like, Coach, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to score. I was like, yeah, but you can't score without the ball. But it, I think it's more concentration finishing the catch than he's got bad hands. Final question. A big emphasis for Washington in this draft class was getting high-character guys. Washington, as you probably know, has had off-the-field issues. Ron Rivera's talked openly about a culture reset. What can you tell us about Dayami Brown, the person? He will show up to work every day. He's going to compete. I trust him with everything that I got. You know, he's been to my house. He's been around my kids. Uh, you know, he's not a, you know, he, he's a guy that that understands what it takes to be a pro. He's a guy that also understands what it takes to stay in the pros. You know, and, and that's something that Coach Brown preaches to all the guys all the time. I mean, you can't, you, you can't do both. I mean, you can't be out and you know, being something that you aren't if you want to stay at the profession because there's, I mean, everybody has a camera. So, you know, it's your prof- be professional. I mean, and, and, and that's what you're getting. You're getting a professional. Very good. North Carolina receivers coach Lonnie Galloway. Coach, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. So we had a crazy 6-3 Capitals win at the New York Rangers on Monday night. We had a crazier 4-2 Capitals win at the Rangers on Wednesday night. The game was insane, and from the get-go, off what happened two nights earlier. When, of course, Tom Wilson, in that aforementioned 6-3 Caps victory, went bonkers. Finished the game, and I love this, with a goal and assist, three roughing minors, and a 10-minute misconduct. Not a 10-minute game misconduct, so he stayed in the game. Just a 10-minute misconduct as all heck broke loose in a second-period scuffle that included him cross-checking Pavel Buchnevich and slamming and then grounding and pounding Artemi Panarin, who suffered a season-ending injury. Wilson incredibly not suspended for any of this. NHL Department of Safety on Tuesday morning announcing that Wilson had been fined $5,000, maximum amount allowed by the collective bargaining agreement. But stunningly, No suspension. I still can't get over that. Wilson got a seven-game suspension in March for something that was far less egregious, I thought anyway, and he gets nothing for what went down on Monday night. I'm happy, but I still can't get over that. Anyway, Caps-Rangers the rematch on Wednesday night. Same two teams, 
Same spot. You knew it was going to go down, and go down it did. One second, one second into the game on Wednesday night, we had another brawl for all, the first of multiple brawl for alls in the game. The initial brawl for all, one second into the game, resulted in three five-minute fighting majors for each team. The three for the Caps went to their fourth line guys, Garnett Hathaway, Nick Dowd, and Carl Hagelin. That told you all you need to know, that the Caps began the game with the likes of Hathaway, Dowd, and Hagelin on the ice. Again, everyone on the planet knew this game was going to go down this way. We then had Tom Wilson and a Rangers player, each getting a five-minute fighting major just 50 seconds into the first period. We then had each team getting two five-minute fighting majors, 4-14 into the first period. The two for the Caps in that instance going to Michael Roffel and Lars Eller. And then at the 15:56 mark of the first period, we had a player on each team getting a 10-minute misconduct for the Caps. That player was Wilson. Defenseman Zidane Chara, he of his age 43 season, getting a 10-minute misconduct, 15:46 into the second period. On and on I can go, but just understand this. Ultimately, in this game, what ended up being a Caps win, 4-2, the Caps and Rangers combined for 27 total penalties, 13 five-minute majors, including 12 five-minute fighting majors, and six 10-minute misconduct penalties. You can find on NHL.com after every game what's called the game summary, and the game summary lists all of the penalties, among many other things. The game summary for this game is hysterical to look at. I'm looking at it right now as I speak. 11 total penalties for the Capitals, 16 total penalties for the Rangers. The photo that made the rounds on social media of all of the Capitals being stuffed into the Caps penalty box. It was like a Saturday at Costco where like you can't move because you're surrounded by people. That's what the penalty box was like for the Caps in this game on Wednesday night. Again, bonkers. And you know, it's bonkers in in not always such a funny way. It got violent. Guys could have really gotten hurt. Pavel Buchnevich was ejected after jumping to deliver a cross check to Anthony Mantha. Like it was nasty. And it was all because of what happened with Tom Wilson on Monday night. The game was a complete and total mess. And look, if you're the NHL, let's be honest here, right? This is good for the NHL. This gets attention for the NHL. This gets people talking about the NHL. I have heard more Capitals conversation in this area over the last 48 hours than I had heard at any point so far this season. And it was all about Wilson and the Rangers. That's what the conversation has been about. So I don't care what the NHL or any of its teams say publicly. This stuff is good for the league in terms of people getting to talk about it. But if you are the Capitals, this is not good. And it's not not good because, you know, oh, it's like bad from a morality standpoint or anything like that. I'm I'm not into that stuff. It's bad because you put your players at risk from both a suspension standpoint and from an injury standpoint. You know, Wilson got hurt on Wednesday night. Wilson ended up leaving the game due to an upper body injury, uh, perhaps due to his hand. His hand was bloodied in his first period fight. The Stanley Cup playoffs are coming. The Rangers are a team that's going nowhere. The Rangers are a team that got eliminated from playoff contention with that Capitals victory on Monday night. And oh, by the way, the Rangers earlier in the day on Wednesday announced two big moves that team president John Davidson and general manager Jeff Gorton are leaving the organization. So this is a Rangers team with a lot of problems and you're getting sucked down into their abyss and getting into these brawl for alls over the last two games. The Caps have got to get away from this. This all started because of Wilson. He's got to be better than this. He's got to avoid this stuff. Wilson really put the Caps in a very precarious position. Now, 
I think stuff like this can help to bring a team together. I don't know if the Caps necessarily needed that, but you know there is sort of a unifying aspect to all this of the Caps fighting for each other, standing up for each other. You know, a, a collective brawl for all with the Rangers. A game after another collective brawl for all with the Rangers. I get that, but the injury risk totally unnecessary, and Wilson putting himself at risk from a suspension standpoint totally unnecessary. What matters here isn't that the Caps beat up the Rangers. What matters here is that the Caps get past a second round for just the second time in the Alex Ovechkin era. That's what I care about, all right? Beating up on Pavel Bujnevich and Artemi Panarin, I'm not really that into. You know, it doesn't really do a lot for me as a lifelong Capitals fan. Get past the second round for more than once. You know, how about we try that as a franchise? So I hope that this is over with and that the focus now becomes entirely about the postseason. Now, to that end, this game on Wednesday night wasn't just about the fighting, even though the fighting was by far the number one talking point. TJ Oshie on Wednesday night did one of the most spectacular things you'll ever see. So TJ Oshie did not play in that game on Monday night because his father died. His father, Tim Oshie, was just 56, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2012. Tim Oshie passed away. TJ missed the game on Monday night, was back out there on Wednesday night. First game since the death of his father. What did TJ Oshie do? He authored a hat trick. Three goals in the game. What was, interestingly, and I didn't realize this, the first hat trick for the Caps this season. I would have thought at some point somebody did it. No, Oshie's was the first of the season. But how about that, man? Your dad dies, you're back out there, and in your first game back, in a game that was bonkers, you get yourself a hat trick. Oshie had two second period power play goals and a third period even strength empty net goal. It was so great, you know, and and it was such a juxtaposition because you had on the one hand all the ugliness with the fighting, and then on the other hand, you had one of the great stories that you'll ever see in sports. Dad dies at just 56. You know, TJ was tight with his dad, Tim. Tim was on the ice with TJ after the Caps won the cup in 2018. Heck, TJ stands for Tim. Tim Oshie is the dad. TJ for TJ Oshie, that stands for Tim Jr., okay? So like this obviously was an emotional night for TJ Oshie. He goes out there and doesn't just play well. He scores three goals. I mean, that's just incredible when you think about that. There was a great scene of the Caps forming a big group hug around Oshie after his third goal. There was a gif making the rounds on social media of Nicholas Backstrom hugging Oshie. So really cool to see. Like you had the feel bad stuff with the fighting and then you had the feel great stuff with uh, Oshie getting the hat trick. And, you know, Oshie's a guy everybody loves, Captain America. He's been with the Caps for a while now. He's had some big moments. Having a good season, 21 goals over 51 games, and a tremendous job by Oshie on Wednesday night. Another aspect to this 4-2 Caps win at the Rangers on Wednesday night was the absences. Alex Ovechkin, out again, did not play for a fifth time in six games due to a lower body injury. Remember, he tried to play in that 6-3 win at the Rangers on Monday night, returned from a four-game absence, but he played for just one shift before leaving the game because the lower body injury started acting up. We still don't know a lot about Ovechkin's status, but again, the Stanley Cup playoffs are coming. Uh, Still, the Caps were without both Evgeny Kuznetsov and goaltender Ilya Samsonov on Wednesday night. Remember, each guy was suspended for the previous game due to team disciplinary reasons as those guys were late to a team function. Now it's getting a little trickier. Neither guy was out there playing on Wednesday night. The Caps on Tuesday put Kuznetsov on the team's COVID-19 list. So now you got to worry about that. Does Kuzi have COVID? Was this just a precautionary thing, a quarantining thing? Uh, Is Samsonov involved with this or not? Did Kuznetsov potentially pick up COVID because he was out doing something instead of showing up at the team function on time? Again, we don't know. Again, these hockey teams are very secretive with this stuff, but 
Playoffs are coming up. Where are we at with Kuznetsov and Samsonov? Uh, Justin Schultz, the Caps defenseman, was out again. Did not play for a fifth time in seven games due to a lower body injury. In terms of the game, uh, beyond the three Oshie goals, it is worth noting Caps dominated the Rangers in a lot of ways in this game. Certainly dominated the puck possession battle. Caps, per natural stat trick, had 41 five-on-five shot attempts to the Rangers' 21, including 12 high-danger five-on-five shot attempts to the Rangers, too. That's what's kind of funny about these last two games. The fighting has gotten all the attention. Oshie certainly has gotten a decent amount of attention off what he did on Wednesday night. But, like, kind of the sneaky thing is that the Caps won both games and did a lot of things well from a playing standpoint in both games. I mean, the Caps owned the Rangers in this game in so many ways on Wednesday night. Uh, the goaltender for the Caps was Vitek Vanacek, started for a fourth time in five games, stopped 19 of the 21 shots on goal that he faced. Uh, defenseman Dmitry Orlov had a big game, three assists in a game for the first time in his career. And get this, this was the final road game for the Caps this regular season. The Caps conclude this regular season 19-7-2. and on the road. How about that? That's a great job by the Caps on the road this season. I know playing on the road hasn't meant what it's meant in the past because of the COVID-19 pandemic and arenas not welcoming fans, having fans like we're so used to, but still 19-7-2 on the road. Tremendous job by the Caps. So they're now 34-14-5. Caps are back to being tied with the Pittsburgh Penguins atop the East Division at 73 points, four points ahead of the Boston Bruins, five points ahead of the New York Islanders, and just three regular season games remain for the Capitals. Caps have back-to-back home games against the Philadelphia Flyers Friday night and Saturday night at 7, and then Caps are home to the Boston Bruins Tuesday night at 7. Hopefully things start to calm down. You know, in this season in which you have nothing but interdivision games, Caps have faced nothing but other teams in the East Division, there is that familiarity. And you play the same teams and you see the same people over and over and over again. And I think pretty clearly that's been at the crux of this Caps-Rangers thing over the last two games. But it's time for the waters to calm down. It's time, truthfully, for the regular season to end and for the postseason to begin. I do feel like the Caps are going to end up winning the division. But even if they don't, it's not that big of a deal. Play well, stay healthy, get your ailing guys slash suspended guys back there, and let's see the Caps get past the second round this postseason. Craziness for the Capitals again on Wednesday night. Craziness for the Wizards again on Wednesday night, though in a much different way. A 135-134 Wizards loss at the Milwaukee Bucks. Wiz dropped to 30-36 and on the season. Just the third loss over the last 14 games for the Wizards. But how about this? Each of those three losses by one possession. Here are the final scores of the last three losses for our team. A 146-143 overtime loss to the San Antonio Spurs at Capital One Arena on April 26th. A 125-124 loss at the Dallas Mavericks this past Saturday night. And a 135-134 loss at the Milwaukee Bucks on Wednesday night. How do you kill the Wizards for those three losses? Three one-possession losses over the last 14 games. That's it. I mean, you just want to give our team a big hug. Our lovable, huggable Washington Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, Stephen A., thank you very much. I don't know that we can play that soundbite as much anymore because the Wizards aren't the damn Washington Wizards at this point. They're becoming such a likable and fun team to follow. Wizards got a favorable result, too, on Wednesday night. The Indiana Pacers lost at home to the Sacramento Kings, 104-93. So the Wizards, as we speak on this Thursday, still a half game behind the Pacers for ninth 
in the Eastern Conference. So the Wiz are pretty firmly entrenched in that number 10 spot, three games ahead of the Toronto Raptors for 10th in the East. Oh, by the way, the Wizards face the Raptors in Florida on Thursday night. Remember, the reason that spots 9 and 10 in the Eastern Conference matter is because we have a play-in tournament for the NBA playoffs this year. Each conference seeds 7 through 10 partaking in the play-in tournament for the right to be in the NBA playoffs. The Wizards with this loss at the Bucks on Wednesday night fall to 12 and 24 against Eastern Conference teams on the season as compared to 18 and 12 against Western Conference teams. I still can't get over that. It was a wild game at the Bucks. Wiz were up by 11 in the second quarter, then allowed the Bucks to go on a 72-53 run that put the Wiz down by eight at the end of the third quarter. Wiz then began the fourth quarter on an 11-0 run for a three-point lead at 106-103, but the Wizards then allowed the Bucks to go on a 30-22 run, putting the Wizards down 133-128 with a little more than a minute left. The Wizards actually did a pretty good job on the Greek Freak on Wednesday night. Giannis Adetokounmpo, 0-2 on three, six turnovers, and he ended up playing for just 29 minutes, 40 seconds due to fouling out. Uh, he finished with 23 points, nine rebounds, eight assists. He had some highlight moments. I mean, he is the freak, but the Wizards, all things considered, did a good job, I thought, on Giannis. Giannis has scorched the Wizards in the past. That was not the case on Wednesday night. What did scorch the Wizards on Wednesday night was the Bucks' three-point shooting. Wizards' three-point defense has not been good this season. That was, again, the case on Wednesday night. Bucks shot 18 of 37 on threes, 53.9% shooting for the Bucks from the field overall. Wizards, conversely, bat again on threes, just 8 of 22. Though, again, good on twos, 39 to 74 on the evening. But it's hard to win when the opposing team goes 18 to 37 on threes and you go 8 to 22 on threes. I mean, 18 made threes by them versus 8 made threes for you. Tough to make a living that way. How about this, too? Uh, the Wizards lost despite having just seven turnovers to the Bucks 20. I mean, that's amazing. Seven turnovers for the game is excellent. You're plus 13 in the turnover battle, and yet you're still do end up losing the game. Huge game for Bradley Beal. A 40-point game. He finished with 42 points in just 38 minutes, 43 seconds as a starter. Beal, who has not been good on threes, I've been talking about that, was good on threes on Wednesday night. Three of six on threes, 11 of 18 on twos, 11 of 14 on free throws. Also had four rebounds, three assists, just two turnovers. And Beal was so good in the fourth quarter. Wizards won the fourth quarter, 39-32. Beal in that fourth quarter, two of two on threes, 11 points. He nailed a huge contested 25-foot left-wing three with just under a minute left in the fourth quarter to get the Wizards to within two at 133-131. And then Beal drained another 25-foot three. This one off an inbounds pass to get the Wizards to within one at 135-134 with four and a half seconds left in the fourth quarter. You know, Beal has taken some grief over the years for not being a great clutch shooter, you know, not, not coming through late in close games. He came through late in this close game on Wednesday night. Beal was outstanding, and Russell Westbrook was outstanding once again. Another monster performance from Westbrook. Another triple-double, his 33rd triple-double, extending his single season and career franchise records. 29 points, 17 assists versus two turnovers, and 12 rebounds to go with three steals in 40-23 as a starter. He was efficient as a shooter. Yes, 0-2 on threes, but 12 of 18 on twos, did go just five of eight on free throws. And Westbrook, like Beal, huge in the fourth quarter. Westbrook in that fourth quarter, 13 points, four assists versus one turnover, and a massive steal 
in the closing seconds that gave Garrison Matthews a shot at a desperation 52-foot heave that was close to going in. You know, Wizard down 135-134. Westbrook gets the Wizards another possession. Matthews, who played a lot in the fourth quarter, throws up a desperation three, and it almost went in. Sadly did not. Wizards ended up losing by the one point. But another triple-double for Westbrook. He is now too shy of the all-time record. Westbrook has 179 career regular season triple-doubles. NBA record held by Oscar Robertson in terms of regular season triple-doubles in a career, the big O at 181. But understand this, Westbrook with that triple-double on Wednesday night did tie Robertson for the most combined career regular season and postseason triple-doubles, 189. So in terms of all-time triple-doubles in everything, regular season and postseason, Westbrook has in fact tied Oscar Robertson for number one in NBA history. Wizards were without Rui Hachimura. He did not play due to an illness that is not COVID-19. Wizards got some great performances off the bench. Daniel Gafford, another outstanding job by him in limited playing time. Played for just 14 minutes, two seconds off the bench. I I don't really understand why he's not playing more. I I know less can be more for some people, and Gafford was on a minutes restriction not long ago, but can we please expand things with Daniel Gafford? 12 points, 10 rebounds, 2 assists versus no turnovers on Wednesday night. If you're familiar with Bobby Marks, the ESPN NBA front office insider, Bobby Marks late on Wednesday night put out the following tweet, and it's not hyperbole at all. He wrote, Marks did, in this tweet, quote, The most impactful trade at the deadline might be Daniel Gafford to Washington. Marks may not be wrong about that. Gafford has been tremendous for the Wizards. And the job that Tommy Shepard did in getting Gafford to D.C. cannot say enough about that. I mean, think about Shepard right now. The trade to get Russell Westbrook and the trade to get Daniel Gafford. Two trades that look tremendous at this point from a Wizards standpoint. Garrison Matthews, I mentioned him big time in the fourth quarter on Wednesday night. Eight points, including going five or six on free throws. It says a lot about Matthews. It's got Brooks trusted Matthews out there in that fourth quarter in a game at the Bucs. And Robin Lopez, facing off with his brother, Brooke Lopez, was good on Wednesday night. Robin Lopez, eight points, four, six shooting, six rebounds, and three blocks in just 17 minutes, 26 seconds off the bench. Now, the Wizards needed all this because their other three starters, Haul Neto, Anthony Gill, and Alex Len, didn't do that much. Uh, combined 20 points on 8 of 20 shooting. Gill did go 5 of 10 from the field, but uh, Neto, who's been good lately, wasn't as impactful as we as uh, we had become accustomed to. Uh, Len did kind of what he always does, where he starts, but he doesn't play that much. Davies Bertans, again, was underwhelming. You know, his bad season continues. Just 2 of 6 on threes, 13 points off the bench. Ish Smith, another guy who's been good lately, struggled on Wednesday night. 0 of 6 shooting for him from the field. And Chandler Hutchison, did suffer a left knee contusion. But the Wizards, I mean, again, it's hard to be mad at them right now. When they lose, they lose close. The offense for the Wizards is rolling. Beal is scoring. Westbrook has been out of his mind. Daniel Gafford looks like one of the real finds of the NBA season. Wizards have six regular season games left, face the Raptors in Florida Thursday night at 7.30, and then the Wizards are at the Pacers in a big game. If you consider the nine seed versus the 10 seed in the regular season before the play-in tournament, a big game, Saturday night at 7. All right, so here we go. Orioles before the Nationals in an installment of the Al Galdi podcast. First time that this has happened. Maybe it's the only time. We'll see. Long season. Lots can happen. But John Means on Wednesday afternoon, a no-hitter. And the Orioles, Joe Angel in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, they were a truly special day if you're an Orioles fan. A 6-0 win 
at the Seattle Mariners. John Means throwing a no-hitter that was nearly a perfect game. You know, not all no-hitters are created equal. Some no-hitters feature a lot of walks, feature misplays in the field. This no-hitter was like a brief scratch from being a perfect game. John Means allowed no hits, also allowed no walks, complete game shutout, featured 12 strikeouts. The only thing that kept the performance from being a perfect game was Sam Haggerty reaching first base on a strikeout, on a swing and miss, on a wild pitch by Means with one out in the top of the third. But even Haggerty ended up being gunned down because the catcher, Pedro Severino, the former national, later threw out Haggerty on an attempted steal of second base for the second out in the inning. So this to me is the non-perfecto perfecto from John Means, just like Max Scherzer had the imperfect perfect game a few years ago with the Jose Tabata situation. But John Means was outstanding. Circle change up to die for. That circle change was deadly for Means on Wednesday. Per MLB.com, six of Means' 12 strikeouts coming on changeups. You know, Means had never lasted for longer than seven innings in a game. Goes out there on Wednesday, throws a no-hitter. This was the sixth no-hitter in Orioles history. First no-hitter since a combined no-hitter for the Orioles in July 1991. A 2-0 win at the Oakland A's on July 13th, 1991. You ready for these names in terms of the guys who combined for that no-no? Bob Malacki, Mike Flanagan, Mark Williamson, and Greg Olson. That's like a who's who of Orioles pitchers from your early 90s birds, okay? If you're like me, you're growing up at that time, you're collecting baseball cards, you're playing your RBI baseball on Nintendo, you're Tony La Russa baseball on your computer, like these are names that stick with you. But in that game, Malacky and Flanagan did combine for four walks. John Means' no-no on Wednesday was the first individual no-hitter by an Orioles pitcher since Jim Palmer's on August 13th, 1969. That was an 8-0 win over the A's at Memorial Stadium. But Palmer in that game issued six walks. So like not all these no-hitters are necessarily performances where the pitcher was just on throughout the game. Like there are control issues for the guys at times in these no-hitters. Not for John Means on Wednesday. He was spectacular and he's been spectacular this season. See, that's the thing. This isn't a no-no by some jabroni who's never heard from again. This is a no-no from a guy in John Means who is on the rise and who to me at this point is profiling as the best Orioles starting pitcher since Mike Messina. John Means now on the season over seven starts has an ERA of 137, has a whip of 0.67. If you go back to last season, John Means, yes, got off to a rough start, dealt with left arm fatigue, also dealt with the death of his father. So isn't that interesting? TJ Oshie off the death of his dad, hat trick on Wednesday night. John Means off the death of his dad, and that was a few months ago, Throws a no-hitter on Wednesday. But anyway, Means ended his 2020 season in strong fashion. Uh, was very good over his last four starts. Had an ERA of 152 over his last four starts. So great over the last four starts last season. Great so far over the first seven starts this season. Was great in 2019 when, per baseball reference, he had a war of 4.8, which is tremendous. Yes, John Means, to me, is the best Orioles pitcher since Mike Messina. Now, he's got to keep it up. If he completely falls apart from, you know, now until the rest of his career, then no, you can't say he's the best starter since Mike Messina. You'd have to say someone like Chris Tillman was. I mean, it's not a lot. There's not a lot to choose from for this, okay? You you know, you're kind of like asking, well, who's the nicest guy in prison here in terms of best Orioles starting pitcher since Mike Messina? It's been a brutal run for the Orioles in terms of starting pitching over the last 20 years. But like, you know, I look at Tillman. Tillman did have some good seasons, but he was never like a great pitcher. He was just kind of good. Uh, he had three good seasons in four years, basically. 2012, 
through 2014 and then 2016. But he was bad in 2015. He was wretched in 2017 and 2018. Chris Tolman's last two seasons for the Orioles, he had a combined ERA of 842 over 119 and two-thirds innings. And even his best season in terms of war per baseball reference, 2013, 3.7. Like, that's good, but that's not tremendous. John Means, again, his best war already is 4.8, and he's tracking to have a lot more than that uh, if he keeps this up with what he's doing so far this year. But yeah, man, there's not a lot to choose from, okay? I mean, Sidney Ponson ain't getting the honor. Rodrigo Lopez ain't getting the honor. Ubaldo Jimenez ain't getting the honor in terms of best Orioles starting pitcher since Mike Messina's time with the team from 1991 to 2000. I think John Means right now holds the championship belt, and we'll see if he holds on to it. John Means is a great story. 11th round pick for the Orioles in the 2014 draft out of West Virginia University. And to the issue of, is John Means a chip to be flipped? Because you know where I stand when it comes to the Orioles this season. I want the young players to do well. I want the older players to do well as well. But I want those guys to do well so they can be traded to get more prospects. Because there's no point in playing the game of signing veterans. You know, by the time the Orioles get truly good again, these veterans are going to be long gone. John Means is tricky because he is a bit older. This is his age 28 season. But he's under team control through the 2024 season. So after this season, you still have John Means under team control for three more years. So I do think it's possible he's still pitching well for you by the time the O's get good again. I mean, hopefully the Orioles start to make a push toward getting back to being good. I don't know, a year from now, two years from now. You know, like I, like next season isn't going to be a year that the Orioles go into looking to contend. But maybe by the end of next season, you're starting to feel really good about things. And the following year, 2023, you can kind of target. Well, at that point, going into 2023, you still have two seasons left to team control with John Means. So I don't think John Means is a definite chip that needs to be flipped. Like, I think Trey Mancini is someone who the Orioles need to be serious about trading. I don't know that they are. I think they should be. I don't view Means the same way. It's different with those two. Mancini's going to be a free agent after next season. Means is not set to be a free agent until, again, after the 2024 season. So what a job by John Means. What a great day. There have been so few great days for Orioles fans in recent years. To have a day like that on Wednesday was pretty special. Oh, by the way, the Orioles won the series. Ended up taking two or three at Seattle with the 6-0 victory. Wrap up a 4-2 and two trip out West against the top two teams in the American League West in the Oakland days and the Seattle Mariners. You know, I mentioned the Orioles targeting being truly good, you know, a year or two from now. Orioles so far have actually been pretty good. Like all things considered, O's are 15 and 16 overall, including 11 and 6 on the road versus 4 and 10 at home. No, I don't expect this to continue, but it is nice to have for at least a little while off again, just some awful seasons for the Orioles over the last few years. Also standing out on Wednesday was Trey Mancini, aka the RBI machine. So Trey Mancini as the starting DH and number three batter, two out, four pitch walk in the top of the first, and then a one out, three run homer in the top of the eighth. This off what he did in the 5-2 loss at Seattle on Tuesday night. Three singles, including an RBI single. No Mancini is not having a great season overall, but especially coming off the cancer, it's pretty cool that the guy's leading the team and runs batted in with 25 now. You know, he's only batting 252. He's got an on-base of just 308. He's slugging 445, but 25 runs batted in for Trey Mancini. I'm not a big RBI guy, but it is nice to be able to know that when it comes to Mancini coming off the cancer. O's are off on Thursday. They get a four-game series with the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Friday night at 7.05, a rare Friday through Monday series for the Orioles. 
Another loss for the Nationals in their big series with the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. 5-3 loss on Wednesday night. The Nats falling to 12-14. and The Nats giving up another Grand Slam. Giving up a Grand Slam for a second consecutive game. Eric Fetty giving up a two-out first pitch Grand Slam by Marcel Ozuna in the top of the third. It was in the Nats' 6-1 loss to the Braves at Nats Park on Tuesday night. The Tanner Rainey gave up a two-out Grand Slam to the Braves. Starting pitcher Uwaskari Noah in the top of the sixth. Enough with the Grand Slams, please. Uh, Nats did hit two home runs themselves on Wednesday night, but that's just four other hits to go with four walks. Went 0-6 with runners in scoring position off going 0-3 with runners in scoring position in game one. The Nats scored two runs in the bottom of the eighth, but should have scored so much more in that inning. This was painful to watch, and, and I felt like this inning really captured in so many ways the offensive frustration for the Nationals so far this year. So Andrew Stevenson on Wednesday night came off the bench, had a leadoff hit by pitch in that bottom of the eighth. Man, does it feel like the Nationals every game get hit by at least one pitch. Then came the big blow, Trey Turner delivering a two-run homer. So awesome. All right, great. You're in business. You get a couple of runs. Josh Harrison then popped out. A bad night for him as the starting right fielder, by the way, not at second base. He was a number two batter as well, 0 for 4. But Ryan Zimmerman, your starting first baseman, number three batter, then drew a one-out four-pitch walk. Then Starling Castro, who was the Nats' cleanup batter in the game. More on that in a moment. Laced a one-out double, despite having been down in the count at 1.12. Again, you're in business. Jan Gomes then struck out on eight pitches, but you can't be too mad at him. He battled in that plate appearance. Number five batter, two for four with a homer and a single. Had a one-out single, bottom of the second, two-out solo homer in the bottom of the fourth. Kyle Schwarber then did a tremendous job of getting on base. Great eight-pitch walk on a super gutsy take to load the bases with two outs. And then came Victor Robles, and I have been a defender of Victor Robles. I have advocated for Victor Robles to get more of a shot batting higher in the order. I still find it hysterical that the plug got pulled so quickly on Victor Robles as the Nationals' everyday leadoff batter. You know, every day, you put that in quotation marks, every day ended up meaning eight games. But Victor Robles, at some point, has got to deliver. Robles was the number seven batter on Wednesday night as compared to being the number eight batter, which is basically where he's been for the most part recently, although we've had, we have had some instances of him as the number nine batter, batting behind the pitcher, but Robles was the number seven batter. In fact, he batted ahead of Jordy Mercer. I would, you know, I don't take that for granted because we have seen him bat behind the likes of Mercer and Alex Avila this season. But Mercer was the Nats' uh, starting second baseman, was in the number eight spot. Actually, ended up having a halfway decent game. Full count, leadoff walk, bottom of the third single in the bottom of the fifth. But anyway, Robles comes up with two outs, bases loaded, prime run scoring opportunity. It's a two run eighth. This should end up being like a four or five run eighth. And what happens? Victor Robles first pitch fly out to shallow left field with the bases loaded and two outs to end a Nationals two-run eighth inning that, like I said, should have been so much more. Robles went one for four with a single and two strikeouts in the game, had a leadoff single in the bottom of the fifth, but the plate appearance that sticks with you is that moment in the bottom of the eighth, a chance for a big inning, and instead, the Nats go out with a whimper. And there are a few things you can talk about with that plate appearance. Number one, it is another fail for Victor Robles as a batter. His on-base percentage is pretty good on the year, 344, but he's batting just 224, and he's slugging 276. I mean, Robles has hit for like no power throughout the season. The other thing, though, is that Juan Soto was on the bench. Juan Soto, right? Not just the best hitter on the Nationals, but maybe the best hitter in the majors. And Juan Soto was not deployed in that spot. Now, I don't kill Davey Martinez for not pinch hitting Soto for Robles. Victor Robles is a great defensive center fielder. You want him out there defensively. If the game gets even closer with a big hit in that spot, 
then what are you doing defensively moving forward in the ballgame, right? You're going to suffer defensively if you take Robles out. So I, I'm not killing Davey for not pinch hitting Soto for Robles there, but the idea is Juan Soto is a weapon to be fired. And instead, what Davey Martinez ended up doing on Wednesday night was having Soto lead off the bottom of the ninth inning, okay? So Juan Soto comes up, you guarantee he won't be scoring anyone other than potentially himself because he's leading off the inning. And sure enough, what happened? Juan Soto grounded out to begin what ended up being a 1-2-3 bottom of the ninth inning for the Nationals in this 5-3 loss. Now look, Soto, I mean, maybe does the same thing in that spot. If he comes up to pinch hit for Robles with the bases loaded and two outs in the bottom of the eighth inning. But it's like, if you have a weapon, you got to fire that weapon. You got to use that weapon. One of the big mistakes that managers make, and this especially is highlighted in postseasons, and it's something I used to talk about with Matt Williams and Dusty Baker is, use your weapons. Juan Soto, because he's in this weird situation where he's coming off a left shoulder strain, Nationals right now trust him to hit, but don't trust him to field and throw. So he's on the bench and presumably will be the Nationals DH for this upcoming three-game series at the New York Yankees this weekend. Soto is a fabulous weapon to have at your disposal. You got to fire that weapon. And David didn't do that in that spot for Robles. Also didn't do it in another spot earlier in the game. Yadiel Hernandez did not start on Thursday night. Hernandez came up as a pinch hitter with runners on first and second, nobody out in the bottom of the fifth inning, struck out on six pitches. Like that would have been a good spot to make usage of the Soto weapon. And you might say, well, it's early in the game. I don't care. It's a run scoring chance. Don't get caught up in, well, what are you going to do later in the game? Let's get to later in the game and then we'll figure it out. But in the moment, use your weapon. Now, Yadiel Hernandez has been a good hitter so far this season, but he's not Juan Soto. Like to me, that would have made sense to deploy Juan Soto in that spot. So it was interesting when it came to the strategery with Davey on Wednesday night. Strategery. Yes, thank you very much. But there's a bigger picture here, and that is this. Davey Martinez should not have to manage a perfect game for the Nationals to score more than three runs. And just watching this game on Wednesday night and seeing the lineup that the Nationals had out there, I mean, Starling Castro is the cleanup hitter. Jan Gomes is the number five batter. Even Josh Harrison in the number two spot and Ryan Zimmerman in the number three spot. I know that Harrison and Zimmerman have done well so far this season, but like to someone who's not a Nationals fan or a Nationals follower, if you just turn on the game and see this, Harrison in the two spot, Zimmerman in the three spot, Castro in the four spot, Gomes in the five spot, you're saying to yourself, what happened to the Nationals? Like what lineup is this? Okay. And you're not wrong to have that reaction. The Nationals game in and game out are putting lineups out there that are JV quality, okay? They just are. If you're a contending win-now team, as the Nationals supposedly are, these are not the lineups that you should be trotting out there. And it's a real indictment of the construction of this roster that these are the lineups that the Nationals are trotting out there. And it doesn't reflect well on a guy for whom I have a ton of respect, and that is the ninja, Mike Rizzo. Now, I still want to know why Rizzo didn't do more this past offseason? Was that a Rizzo call or was that a learner's call? I.e., Mike Rizzo was handcuffed when it came to the budget. And we don't know the answer to that. But it's very strange to me that the Nationals, again, you know, win now team, Max Scherzer, final season of his contract, four starting pitchers in the rotation in their 30s, and Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Patrick Corbin, and John Lester, you know, veterans on the team like Jan Gomes and Ryan Zimmerman and Josh Harrison et al., and you don't do more than what you did, especially from a position playing standpoint. The Nationals knew they needed to beef up the lineup and what they did 
the two big moves were trading for Josh Bell and signing Kyle Schwarber. And while Schwarber has had a couple of walk-off homers and Bell has hit balls hard and shown some signs of life lately, overall, those two have been major disappointments. And it's like, this is what the Nats are doing. Like, Castro's a cleanup batter in a big game against the Braves. Gomes is a number five batter in a big game against the Braves. And the results have not been good. You know, the Braves starting pitching has not been good so far this season. And yet look at what's happened so far in this series. Nats got stymied by Waskari Noah in game one and had all kinds of problems with Max Freed in this game too. And I know Max Freed is not a bad pitcher, but he's not having a good season. And yet Max Freed looked very good against these Nationals hitters on Wednesday night. The lineup has got to get going. And I don't know that that's going to ever happen with any real frequency this year. There will be good games. There may even be good stretches. But it's hard to believe in this lineup, even when Juan Soto is back playing every game, even if Bell and Schwarber do get going to varying extents. Like, is this going to end up being a really good lineup? I hope so. But it's hard to envision that right now with what we've seen so far on the season. It was a bad night, too, for Eric Fetty, who'd been so good over his last four outings. Eric Fetty, over his previous four starts, an ERA at 261, 24 strikeouts versus eight walks. But remember, those most recent four starts prior to Wednesday nights came off a really bad regular season debut for Fetty. He got wrecked in his first start of the season. A 7-6 loss to, yes, the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. Game one of a doubleheader on April 7th. And sure enough, Fetty against the Braves on Wednesday night did not go well. Again, five runs in five innings. Gave up five hits, two homers and three singles. Issued three walks, one of which was intentional. Had just three strikeouts off having done a nice job getting the strikeout over his last four starts. And he threw just 46 of his 76 pitches Four strikes, uh, four runs, top of the third, given up by Fetty. Leadoff single by William Contreras, a two-out pass ball by Jan Gomes, a two-out five-pitch walk of Ronald Acuna Jr., a two-out intentional walk of Freddie Freeman to load the bases. Freeman's been struggling this season, but of course, he is the greatest Nats killer of all time. And then came the big blow, Fetty giving up a two-out first-pitch grand slam to Marcelo Zuna. I mean, the moment of the game, clearly. And then Fetty in the top of the fourth gave up another homer, a one-out solo homer, to William Contreras. So rough outing for Fetty. I don't want to kill him too hard because, again, he'd been quite good over the previous four games. But Fetty against the Braves is not a great matchup, at least not so far this season. The bright spot for the Nationals, and I do want to highlight this, was the bullpen, which was outstanding on Wednesday night. Three Nationals relievers combining for four perfect innings, including Kyle Finnegan tossing an immaculate inning in the sixth inning. An immaculate inning, in case you don't know, is an inning in which a pitcher has three strikeouts on just nine pitches. Three batters, three strikeouts, each guy, three strikes. That's it. Kyle Finnegan did that. Just the fifth immaculate inning for the Nats franchise since it came to D.C. And the other four immaculate innings were done by Jordan Zimmerman, Max Scherzer twice, and Steven Strasburg. So you have Zimmerman, Scherzer, Strasburg, and Finnegan. Uh, Yeah, Uh, which one of these things doesn't belong here? But anyway, hats off to Finnegan. What a job by him with an immaculate sixth inning. Isn't it funny, right? John Means, a no-hitter for the Orioles. Kyle Finnegan, an immaculate inning for the Nationals. And we weren't done with the Nats bullpen. Sam Clay, a perfect seventh inning on three ground outs. He's a ground ball pitcher. That was vintage Clay in that perfect seventh inning. And then our pal, our guy, Paolo Espino, still on the Nationals roster. Remember the Nats in reinstating Will Harris from the 10-day injured list, opting to ship Kyle McGowan to AAA Rochester, not Espino. And Espino rewarding that with a perfect eighth inning, followed by a perfect ninth inning on Wednesday night to drop his ERA to 193 
on the season. So the bullpen was awesome again, but the offense was not. Fetty had a rough outing, and the Nats fall, and now must try to avoid a three-game sweep against the Braves. Thursday afternoon, first pitch, 4.05, John Lester versus Drew Smiley. I'm really interested to see how Lester does. He got the job done in his Nats regular season debut, that 2-1-10 inning win over the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park last Friday night. Five scoreless innings, although Lester was not dominant in that game, had just one strikeout, gave up five hits, two doubles, three singles, issued two walks, both of which were intentional, and had just one clean inning. So there was a bit of luck involved in Lester doing well, some good defense behind him as well. Got to keep the ball low, got to get a bunch of ground ball outs as Lester did on Friday night. But I would love to see the Nats get out to a lead on Thursday. You have not seen that nearly often enough so far this year. And you're again facing a brave starter in Drew Smiley, who has not been good on the season. Let's see this offense wake up and get some big hits, get some big hits early, hit for power, and avoid the sweep. Coming off that three-game sweep of the Marlins over the weekend, it really would be a buzzkill to see the Nats get swept by the Braves, especially going into the series at the New York Yankees this weekend. You know, we talk about offense. Yankees have John Carlos Stanton and Aaron Judge and DJ LeMayhew and Gio Urshela. And it's like, you're facing a big-time lineup this weekend. You're going to be going toe-to-toe with the mighty Yankees. Nats have got to bring the firepower offensively. I just don't know that they can as currently constructed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Big show coming up on Friday. I'll be talking with Washington football team insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington. Looking forward to that. Also, I've been promising you a quarterback conversation. I will be doing that on Friday's podcast. I'll give you an in-depth look at Washington not taking a quarterback in the 2021 draft and what that says to us. Wizards against the Toronto Raptors in Florida on Thursday night. We'll have that to talk about. And the Nationals trying to avoid a three-game sweep to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park on Thursday. We'll discuss that as well. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. And the Orioles again in the win column. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen.